This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Today we're focusing on our sex lives the reality, and the view in popular culture. We start with a new study about sex at midlife, and then the 20th anniversary of a groundbreaking TV series that changed our view of older single women. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. A new report is shedding light on the financial toll on Canadians caring for aging parents. The CIBC report found that 76% are forced to make financial sacrifices as a result of the added responsibility. Over a third of caregivers report they spend about $430 a month out of pocket. 59% say they had to cut back on expenses and 41% admit to dipping into their personal savings. And even though there are tax credits available, 43% don't know about them, and just 12% have used them. A 95-year-old former Nazi concentration camp guard who was living in the U.S. was deported to Germany this week, 14 years after a judge ordered his expulsion. Yakiv Pali was escorted out of his New York City apartment Tuesday morning. Any regrets, sir? Do you have any regrets? Pali admitted serving in a Polish concentration camp, but denied any involvement in war crimes. If you're thinking of cutting bread and pasta from your diet, think again. A low-carb diet could shorten your life. A U.S. study over 25 years found that a moderate-carb diet or switching out meat for plant-based protein and fats is healthier. Researchers found that those who got 50% of their energy from carbohydrates had a slightly lower risk of death compared with low- and high-carb groups. The study is in Lancet Public Health. For more than 60 years, Anne Wheatley Hicks held on to a painting of her favorite doll, painted in the 76-year-old's hometown of Fredericton by Mary Pratt, who would become one of Canada's most acclaimed artists. Pratt died last week at 83. Wheatley, who now lives in Sudbury, said the artist was her babysitter and believes the painting is probably very valuable. But it has no meaning for her family, so she's hoping to return it to someone in Mary Pratt's family. This week, tenor Placido Domingo hit an extraordinary milestone in opera history. He sang his 150th role in Georges Bizet's The Pearl Fishers at the Salzburg Festival. At 77, Domingo has performed nearly 4,000 times in a six-decade career, recorded more than 100 albums, and he's become a household name as one of the three tenors and in appearances on Sesame Street and The Simpsons. 
Bravissimo. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's a taboo subject, sex in midlife. But it seems many Zoomers have problems in the bedroom like low desire. In fact, 40% of women and 30% of men report not being in the mood, according to new Canadian research on 40 to 59-year-olds published in the Journal of Sexual Medicine. Robin Milhausen from the University of Guelph is the study co-author. We tend to know a lot about adolescents and university students related to sexual behaviors and sexual health, and there's been some interest in recent years in the aging population and sexual functioning and and sexually transmitted infections, but this midlife age group is really understudied and there's so much going on. I'm, I'm in this group now and we are often caring for aging parents. We have young children at home. We're at the height of our career. So to me as a sexuality researcher, this age group is, is very fascinating to look at and it's actually really quite difficult to get a sample of this age range to where do midlife Canadians congregate, not anywhere centrally. So they're a challenging group, but an important group. 55% of men and women had some sexual problem, uh, which fits with other international research. There have been some large-scale studies of sexual problems in the United Kingdom and in the United States, and about 40% report some sexual difficulty. So we're right in line with those findings. And what qualifies as a sexual difficulty. We asked them if they had a difficulty with any of the following problems over the past six months, and if they did, it checked the box, yes. And what were the problems? We asked them about low desire. Uh, For men, we asked about erection problems or ejaculation problems. For women, we asked about vaginal dryness, orgasm difficulties, and vaginal pain. And the biggest problem was low desire. Yes. This is something we hear a lot about for women. It's considered a woman's sexual problem, but actually it was the uh, highest reported sexual problem for men as well. So I'm very glad to get that finding out into the common discourse that there's idea, this idea that men are always ready for sex uh, and that men have high desire and that if there are desire issues in a relationship, it's going to be the woman who has the low desire. And these findings very clearly document that low desire is something that men and women struggle with. Is it physical or is it, you know, is it all in your head? I think that many of these individuals are in long-term relationships. They may have been having, you know, sex with the same person for quite a number of years. So there may be issues with novelty. Um, They may be looking for more novelty or wishing they had more novelty. I think also it has to do with this is, again, a really tough age group. We have young children at home. We have busy careers. We're caring for aging parents. So I think many of us are just so tired and so busy that ravenous desire is not at the forefront of our minds. And I'm glad to put this out there so that we don't hold ourselves up to this unrealistic idea that we're all throwing each other up against the the, kitchen table at the end of a long work week. Mostly Canadians are pretty happy with their sexual lives. So I think that we don't have to let sexual problems, they they are related to how we feel about our overall well-being and our overall life, but they don't determine our happiness. Is the cause of low desire different in women and in men? The factors that impact desire are similar, and they do have to do with 
discomfort communicating about sexual likes and dislikes and a desire for novelty. We do know uh, my previous PhD student, Sarah Murray, did some research on men's experience of desire in their marital relationships. And the men who she interviewed talked about wanting to feel like they're attractive to their partner, wishing their partner would give them more compliments, feeling like they give their female partners all kinds of props and compliments, but feeling like they're kind of isolated. They don't get compliments. When they initiate sex, they are rejected. So the picture of men's sexuality in relationships suggests, I think, that men have some psychological struggles related to feeling desirable, which would impact their desire. Men could have conversations with women about how they initiate, and women could have those conversations too. If you feel like being sexual, how would you like to have that offered, or how would you like to have that initiated? What would make you more receptive to saying yes, and what might be the conditions during which you might feel like saying yes to sex? Is it after the dishwasher is unloaded, or is it after you've had a shower, or, you know, what are the conditions which make you more receptive to sex? If couples have those conversations, they can maximize their likelihood of, you know, being successful with their initiations, but also they can feel a little better about the rejections. There are medical treatments for these sexual problems as well. So we don't have to go down the road of this is going to end our relationship and we're going to get a divorce. We can look into therapy, talk therapy. Doctors are even less and less likely to initiate conversations about sexual problems with older adults as they age. Sometimes doctors just assume you're going to care more about your blood sugar or you're going to care more about your arthritis and you're not going to want to talk about your erectile dysfunction or perhaps doctors aren't comfortable themselves having those conversations. Perhaps they haven't received the training. We represent the Zoomer demographic and definitely uh, it's over 45. So would you say these things apply as well to people who are over 60, but more so uh, what would you say? On that note. Yeah, there are national studies in the U.S. that go beyond our upper age range and show that there is definitely a trajectory where all of these things become more common as we age beyond the 60, 65 age range. Would you say there's also an issue of people having certain expectations, again, because of popular culture? For sure. And I'm happy to have this opportunity to try and bust some of those myths. Um, For example, there's this idea that single people are having all kinds of sex and having a great time. But actually, in our research, uh, married people are having more sex than single people. So the grass is, is not greener in that capacity. I've conducted other research that looks at sexual satisfaction by the level of relationship commitment. So starting with a hookup uh, all the way to a marital relationship. And the most pleasure is reported in marital relationships. I think that about sums it up. Robin Milhausen, thanks so much for being with us. Great. Thanks a lot for having me. That was Robin Milhausen from the University of Guelph. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. Coming up, since we're on the subject of sex and single women, on its 20th anniversary, we look back at the iconic TV show, Sex and the City. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Carrie, Charlotte, Miranda, and Samantha. If you recognize this group of friends, you're probably a fan of the long-running TV series Sex and the City. It explored New York's dating scene and changed the way we view sex and single women. Also, older single women. It was groundbreaking TV for HBO 20 years ago, and now a new book on this pop culture phenomenon documents the show's lasting impact. 
I spoke with author Jennifer Cation Armstrong. This is really a show that wasn't supposed to be this big, gigantic phenomenon, and it became that. So it's a great story. Lots of women worked behind the scenes and were kind of telling their own stories through these characters. You know, the writing staff was all female, and that was extraordinary for 20 years ago. Still kind of extraordinary. And I'm also always looking for something that kind of really changed our culture and I don't know any show that changed our culture as much from the fashion element to how we talk about sex, to how we date, to how we see female friendship, how we see single women. There's just, there's so much there. It seemed to really reflect my previous single life and, and female friendships currently and all of that. Yeah, I think it kind of came in quietly and everybody got to have that nice feeling of like, oh, I discovered this little gem. And it turned out everyone was doing that at the same time. And it really hit a sweet spot with women. They were flawed, complicated women. Now, of course, Kim Cattrall, who played Samantha, the sex kitten, she's Canadian, so we're most interested in her. Mm. And she also, I think, was the oldest cast member. Yes. What we call a Zoomer. So was her (laughs) character... The most groundbreaking, you think? Oh, for sure. I I can't remember who it was that said this to me in the book, but it's in there that one of the producers said to me something like she was the leader of the revolution. And I think that that's so true. And that character just broke huge pretty soon after the show itself broke. You know, this was when everybody was talking about the show and immediately the discussion went to Samantha, right? Because... She was something we hadn't really seen exactly before. I mean, we'd seen sex kitten roles, but she was more than a kitten. You know, (laughs) she was a tiger. You know, she really led that revolution toward the idea that women could still be sexy and vibrant and unapologetic. And the other part about her character is that kind of element where she didn't really want to settle down. She wasn't looking to get married. Her boyfriend at the time said he didn't want her to do it. And she kind of had reservations about a bunch of different things to do with it. She had read the book it was based on by Candace Bushnell and felt like it was kind of dark and pessimistic about love and dating. She didn't like that aspect of it. You know, the the TV show ended up being a little different. And she she didn't really want to commit to a television show either. So all of those things together uh, really made her go like, eh, I don't need to be doing this. I'm, you know, I've I've had a good career. I'm sure I'll get more offers. And they, I mean, really at the last minute, the creator Darren Starr actually flew out to Los Angeles to make a last ditch attempt to get her to sign on. They had signed on a completely different actress and were ready to go. And. His partner at the time was a casting director, too, and he said, you have to get Kim Cattrall. And so he flew out, had lunch with her, and kind of wooed her. Let's move on to another character, and that is Miranda. Mm, So Miranda is the go-getting lawyer, also not that interested in love. Yes. See, it's very important that we have all these different kinds of women and also different kinds of women who weren't necessarily prioritizing love first. And she, I mean, I love Miranda so much. And one of the funny things that's that's happened that I really knew about because of my research for this book and being out promoting it is that the younger women who are just catching on to this show now, the millennials, they all love Miranda. Like Miranda was supposed to be the like 
smart not pretty one. one. That's the not, yeah, and they said that the not pretty one that, and it was it used to be when you know people would say which one are you. The, you know, she was kind of almost created to be the one that no one said. She was just the voice of reason. And now they all say they're Mirandas, which I think is great because she is the smart, successful one. I mean, they're all pretty successful, but she is the most successful on her own among those four women. Smart, feminist, empowered. And, you know, I think it's great. And the actress is running for governor of New York now. Well, that's what I was (laughs) going to say. The the most interesting thing to me when I see Cynthia Nixon running for governor, well, I think she's running to a large extent on that character of Miranda. That's how people know her. And you would kind of trust Miranda to have a big political job. Absolutely. She was a lawyer, right? And um, she was smart. And something, this is, I'm stealing a joke that many people have made online already, but I love it, which is that um, a lot of people have said, this is the ending to Sex in the City we all deserved as Miranda running for governor. What should we remember or why should we care about this 20 years on? I think you cannot overstate what this did for the way we look at single women who are over 30, especially. And that's huge. And now, you know, we're seeing massive demographic shifts where a lot of people are choosing to be single. And this really started to change the way we saw that. Kind of, I always say it changed it from that Kathy cartoon idea or a Spencer kind of idea of a single woman into this fabulous, you know, probably overblown idea of, oh, it's just all Cosmos and Cupcakes and Manolos. But they really made the single woman enviable instead of pitied, and that is huge. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Jennifer Cation Armstrong, author of the new book, Sex and the City and Us, How Four Single Women Changed the Way We Think, Live, and Love. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, a singer best known for his country roots, but this gambler had pop hits too. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Zneimer. It's time for your international arts date book. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Bob Comsick. One of the most successful romantic comedies of the last 30 years is now on stage in New York. Pretty Woman, the musical, is at the Nederlander Theatre. In Australia, an exhibit at the Sydney Science Festival asks the question, what makes us human and how might humans adapt in the future? In Wozner, in the Netherlands, the Verlinder Museum is presenting Rhapsody in Blue. The title refers to the 1924 Gershwin composition. Selections from the museum's collection of modern and contemporary art can be seen arranged on shades of blue. And Bolivia has announced plans to build an underwater museum where thousands of priceless artifacts honoring the son of the sun god and his wife have been discovered. I'm Bob Kopsick, and that's your International Arts Datebook. This week, Kenny Rogers celebrated his 80th birthday. 
Born in Houston, Texas on August 21st, 1938, Rogers is best known as a country singer, but he's had more than 120 hit singles across music genres, including pop and country. Worldwide, he's sold over 100 million records, making him one of the best-selling musical artists of all time. But even with countless hit singles, his name is synonymous with one song you're probably singing already. Here is The Gambler. On a warm summer's evening On a train bound for nowhere I met up with a gambler We were both too tired to sleep That was Kenny Rogers with The Gambler. Rogers celebrated his 80th birthday this week. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. Produced by Christine Ross, Michelle Saunders, Paul Thomas, and Andre Lowy. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.